All right, if you got your Bibles, open up to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'll wait for everybody to get there. If you couldn't tell by the songs, we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ as our living hope. So, born again, being born again to our living hope. I'll read the passage, verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. I'll read it and then we'll pray and then we'll get going. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, You are our living hope. God, You are our sustainer, our source of strength. Lord, You're the the one who has given us life, new life. Lord, this is the basis of everything that we live our lives, or that we base our lives upon. This is the foundation of every single thing that we base our lives upon, Lord, is Your Gospel. It is Your message. This is... Your message, Lord, and I thank You for not only giving it to us, Lord, but planting it in our hearts. All of us, all the ones that are saved in here, Lord, I thank You for the work that You have done in us through the death and resurrection of Your Son. Lord, we love You, and we thank You. And Lord, I pray that as I get ready to speak, Lord, I pray that You'd empty me of myself, because my words are fading and they mean nothing. They carry no weight, and they never will. God, Your words are eternal. Your words contain life. Lord, there, there is not a, a blunt verse in Your book. There's not a dull chapter. So Lord, I pray that You would cut us deeply with Your Word tonight, and I pray that You would cause us to bear fruit as a result. Lord, I love You, and I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Right on. So, the reason I wanted to do Living hope is obviously because Dad preached on on hope last week, um, but I think it's extremely important for us to have a firm foundation to stand upon, especially in the world that we've got now. I mean, there are a lot of things that you can base your life upon. There are a lot of lies that people offer you that throw that, that sound good that people throw out there, um, but they all lead to death. Every single one of them. I mean, just to put it point blank, every single promise that has ever been given in hopes or regard to eternal life or Hope, you know, after this life results in death, you know, and, and that's why I want to go through this because as we go further, as we get further or get closer to the, to the day of our Lord's coming, it's just going to get worse. So we need to make sure that we are grounded and that we are standing firm. So in the time that this letter was written, uh, the church was actually undergoing some major, major persecution. Um, Nero, who was the emperor of Rome at the time, he was quite literally known for hunting Christians down. Um, He would hunt them down just to slaughter them. 
he would do wild things. He would put them in cages and in his house and feed them to lions and bears and all sorts of animals. He would, he would torture them for his own entertainment. Um, he would put stakes through them as decoration for his gardens. And then eventually he would light them on fire. But Peter is writing this letter to these kinds of guys. I know that we are nowhere near there, nowhere near that point of persecution. Um, but we still have a living hope. And we still have the Lord Jesus, right? So, so imagine the temptation that these early Christians were facing to leave the faith. You know, like it's either you die a horrific death or you can denounce Christ. You know, that, those are your options. And there's not really an option, obviously, and that's why we're going through this. But imagine the temptation that they had. It's nearly impossible for us to understand, right? I mean, these Christians had to endure the hardest of things apart from what Christ has endured, right? So this letter that the Holy Spirit inspired Peter to write was written at that time for those in the dispersion, you know, the elect exiles who were being scattered all throughout the land. Peter takes the time to exhort all Christians from his age all the way to our age. I mean, this, this exhortation reaches from not only back then to a little bit further, you know, it just it comes from the time that it was written all the way to now because this is the Word of God and it is eternal and the things that He's told us in His book are true, right? So He, Christ, Peter takes the time to exhort all Christians, sorry, He is exhorting all Christians to remember our one true hope who is Christ Jesus. Christ alone is our only guaranteed source of eternal life, our only source of peace, joy, or satisfaction or blessing. There's no other source that gives these things. There's no other outlet that these things can come from. I mean, there's no, no, nothing else, right? And this very same letter that was inspired by the Holy Spirit, that was meant to strengthen the spirits of the elect exiles in the dispersion, has by the grace of God made its way to us. It has made its way to us. And we are the redeemed sojourners of today's world. We are the elect exiles of today's world. So let's begin by looking at verse 3. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So Peter begins this letter like Paul does um, with a great doxology. It was like an explosion of doxology. He begins with, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, why is he saying that? Why is, why is Peter glorifying the Lord right here? Well, he answers it in the next sentence. Why is he doing this? Because of the great and voluntary mercy that God has given and, and, and bestowed upon man. That, that is why, because of the salvation that we've been given. And what is this mercy that he's blessed us with? What is this thing that he's given us? Well, this mercy is the new life in Christ. This mercy is the power of God and the salvation. This mercy is King Jesus. It is Jesus as Savior, not as Judge. That is that mercy, Right? Through Jesus' righteous life, atoning death, and victorious resurrection, we have been born again to a living hope. So this is where we're going to park for a little bit. I think this section of the sermon is going to be the longest, the born again section. Because anytime I hear born again, wherever I read it, no matter who I hear it from, I always think of two questions. Always. Why is it necessary for me to be born again? What was I born into the first time? Why is it necessary? And what was I born into originally? What was I born into when I came into this world? So, these questions, I think, when answered correctly, are probably some of the most sobering and humbling truths to ponder. Um, truths that every Christian should, I think, consider every single day as we recount the gospel to ourselves. You know, as we 
remind ourselves of what Christ has done. So, to answer the questions, why is it necessary for us to be born again, and what were we born into the first time, right? Ephesians 2, 1-3 says this, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So without the saving grace of God, what does Ephesians 2 tell us we all are? Dead. We are all dead. Period. What does a dead man do? Absolutely nothing. That's not true. He can't do anything in, in a way that glorifies the Lord or pleases God, but what he can do is follow the course of this world. What he can do is follow the devil. What he can do is gratify the desires of his flesh. He can do those things, but they are of no eternal significance whatsoever, right? So we are dead. We are lawbreakers, and we choose sin over obedience and communion with God, right? The Bible, or this, I think this passage is super controversial in many churches. Um, and I just wish for once that somebody would pick up their Bible and read this as it is. Because the Bible says, mine says we're dead. Mine says we're dead, right? And that's what we are. That's what Scripture says. We are dead. So, here we clearly see the doctrine of radical depravity. It's found in Scripture. It's everywhere throughout Scripture. The, the doctrine that I am dead in my trespasses and sins, and there is absolutely nothing that I can do to get out of it. There is nothing that I can do to merit salvation, to work my way out. There is nothing that I can muster up within myself to reach uh, being, being worthy enough of salvation. There is nothing like that. We're dead, right? And here we see Paul is clearly telling us that we are dead in our trespasses and sins before God's free gift of grace. So, dead guy can do nothing. Nothing besides bloat and rot. You know? Dead is dead. Dead is dead. And when a Christian truly begins to understand, I think, what this means, what this actually means, all it will do is magnify the, the sovereign goodness and greatness of our Lord and salvation. Right? So a dead guy can do nothing at all. But what does a spiritually dead man do? He rots and rebels in his own depraved flesh, walking in ways that gratify the evil desires and sinful pleasures of his dead heart. He attempts to satisfy his appetite with every single thing this world has to offer to no avail, right? The things that God abhors, he delights in. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, impurity, passion, evil desire, mammon, self-interest, pride, covetousness, and idolatry. All of these things God hates, and all of those things a dead man loves. So, the first warning I would give is if you fall into that description... Those who have been given the new life in Christ detest those things. Detest those things, right? So we've got to be careful of that. But yeah, sin is never done with the sinner. Sin is never done with the sinner, and the sinner is never done with sin. He walks following the course of this world. That's what Ephesians tells us. He walks following the course of this world, thinking as the world thinks, and feeling as the world feels, right? He is self-consumed in all of his ways, and he does not know God. The darkness within a dead man clouds his mind from all things upright and holy. It is impossible for him to see the kingdom of heaven. It is impossible for him to see the, the things of the Lord. It is impossible because he is blind and he is darkened in his understanding because of his own sin. So he doesn't seek after God. He doesn't acknowledge God in anything that he does because he cannot. He cannot and he will not. 
do those things. And here's the truth. You can only serve the kingdom that you were born into. You can only serve the kingdom that you were born into. That's like me saying, me as a United States citizen, I'm going to go work at a public school system, I don't know, and try to get paid by China or something like that. that doesn't, that's not how it works. That You can't do that. But you can only serve the kingdom that you were born into. And Ephesians tells us that not only are we being led by just our flesh in this world, but we are also following the will of the devil. We are following the will of the devil, right? A dead man follows the prince of the power of the air making us sons of disobedience. And in John 8.44, Jesus says this. This is scary. In John 8.44, Jesus says this. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. So, we are opposed to God in every way if we are left in our natural birth state. Right? If we are left in our natural state, our natural state as we come into this world, we are dead. We are dead and opposed to God. The natural man opposes God and hates Him. A natural man has friendship with the world, therefore he is at enmity with God, right? And God's wrath will be poured out against those and upon those whose allegiance falls with the world, right? And I think something that we need to all understand is this, is since we're dead, since we're dead apart from the grace of God, we need to understand these things. Jesus did not come to the earth to just offer life rafts to drowning people. That's not what it was. It wasn't that we were just drowning, that we were just a little bit sick, Um, and we just needed a little bit of help, it was that we were dead, right? Dead men don't need medicine. Dead men don't need life rafts. Dead men don't need assistance. They need saving. They need saving, right? Dead men don't need the life raft because we're already in the deepest and darkest canyon of the ocean. The point that I'm making is that we are utterly defenseless and hopeless before the face of God's judgment. He is holy and His standards of righteousness and perfection have not been met in us, and they can never be met in us, right? There's nothing in this world that we could place our hope upon to escape the wrath of God, which we rightly deserve. Nothing of this world. Make sure you realize I'm saying that. There's nothing of this world, right? The only faith that can save us is a faith that is rooted in Christ alone. Like we are just singing in every single song, Jesus, firm foundation, right? Like He is our living hope. The only faith that can save is a faith that is rooted in Christ alone. And verse 3 says this, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God the Father, in His great sovereignty, engineered a way for dead sinners to receive the new life in Christ. God the Father sent His only Son, His Holy Son, Christ, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation, the wrath-bearer for our sin. Jesus stepped down from the throne room of heaven. He laid aside His glory and He put on the flesh of a man. Our Creator came as creature. Our Creator came as creature and He was born as a baby, yet He remained fully God and fully man. Fully God and fully man. There's no trace or stain of sin found within Him. He followed the will of the Father, walking in perfect obedience and attaining for us the righteousness that we could never attain for ourselves. Right? Christ fulfilled the law of the prophets. And He did so joyfully. Jesus healed the lame and He preached the Word and He declared Himself to be the light of the world that would save us from our darkened state, right? That light that would, the light that would lead fallen sinners out of their bondage to darkness into the glorious light of salvation is Christ. Just in the same way that the pillar of cloud with the light in the middle of it led the Israelites out of Egypt through the Exodus, you know, like it led them and it protected them on the backside, but the light guided them and it was their guide and they followed it, but it also protected them, right? It's also a picture of the good shepherd, but the Lord Jesus did this 
The Lord came and He conquered. He came and He called His sheep. He died for His sheep. And now He is calling them until He is going to return. Now He is calling them effectually and they will respond until the day that every single elect has responded to the Gospel, right? But Jesus in His perfect obedience was led to the cross. Jesus laid His life down for the sake of fallen humanity. Christ took upon Himself the full wrath of God, the full fury, the anger, the vengeance, the, the indignation. All of those things was poured, poured out upon the head of the Holy Son of God, on the sacrificial Lamb, on our behalf. And not only did Jesus die the most excruciating death, but the Father turned His face away. The Father turned His face away. Our sins marred Jesus Christ. The penalty for our sins crushed, caused God to crush His Son, right? So Christ paid the debt of all of those who would believe in Him as Lord and Savior. Christ was buried in a tomb where He was laid for two days, and on the third day, He raised from the dead. He raised Himself from the dead in the fullness of power, and He slaughtered sin. He crushed the serpent, and He defeated death. He did all of that on our behalf. And here is where the born again comes in. When Christ Jesus was crucified on that cross, we were crucified with Him spiritually. When we were alive to sin, we were killed. We were alive to sin and dead to God. We were crucified with Christ, right? The sin that was in us was put to death. The sin that was put within us was put to death. The penalty was put to death. Its dominion, its rule, its reign over us was put to death. And during Christ's resurrection, we were raised with Him in the newness of life. There is no more death. There is no more hopelessness. There is no more weariness. There is only peace, rest, joy, and comfort, right? From the Lord Jesus. But Christ did these things for us. So Jesus came as the light of heaven. The light of heaven. And His mission was to save a people for Himself. Christ Jesus, complete humility, in complete humility, died the death that none of us could have ever died. We have been crucified with Christ. The Holy Spirit has applied to us the life, the death, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There's nothing that we did to help in this salvific process. Not one thing. God ordained it. Christ accomplished and conquered it. And the Holy Spirit has applied it. Right? That's how it works. We didn't do a thing. All we contributed was the penalty. All we contributed was sin. That's the only thing we contributed to. But God the Father has shown us great mercy and He has spared our lives by providing His Son, the sacrificial Lamb, right? And that's where this doxology comes in. That's why Peter is saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because he is realizing not only what Christ did in the past to lead Him to Himself, but what, or what, what Christ did in the past regarding His works. He's not only thinking about just what Christ did on the cross, but He's also thinking about how Christ pursued Him. It's weird. The way that the, the word's set up, it has a present tense and a past tense. So it's, it's strange. He's thinking about the salvation that occurred on the cross, the, 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 the penalty that Christ paid, and He's also talking about the way that Christ has pursued Him throughout the entirety of His life. right? And Peter probably has a better understanding of that because he walked with Christ. You know? in regards to our living hope. So in this world, there are only two distinct types of hope. Two distinct types. Okay, There's an earthly hope and there's a heavenly hope. 
And just like there are only two distinct types of hopes, there are only two distinct places that they lead to. For those who possess hope in the things of this world, they have no place in heaven, and as a result are under the judgment of God. And there is no place for them in the eternal kingdom of heaven. But those who have placed their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as their only hope in both life and in death will receive eternal life. And look, there are millions and millions of false hopes that lead to hell. Right? There are millions. There are so many. Some of them are more convincing than others, but they are false hopes nonetheless. Right? There are a ton of them. Whether it be one of the many schemes of fallen man, whether it be one of the many false religions, which includes believing upon a fake Jesus, a false Jesus, a pseudo-Christ, whether, whether it's that, whether it's a worldly ideology, even the ones that you know, carry with it good morals or principal values or, or biblical principles, they all lead to hell. They all lead to hell because they do not affect the heart and they do not bring new life with them, right? I think perhaps like the most deceptive or common false hope that, that can occur in the church is a, is a hope in our own self-righteousness. There's a hope in our own self-righteousness. And I think we especially as professing believers who are grounded in the Word of God, who know the Word of God, who know theology, who know all these things, that we don't trust and rely upon that. Theology is not what saves us. It's not my piety that saves me. It's not the perceived work that I'm doing for the kingdom that saves me. It is the blood of Christ alone that atones for my sin. So, by placing our trust upon, or placing your trust upon anything in this world, is a lie. You're basing your life upon a lie. And as the church, we must be sure that the foundation of our confidence and assurance is rooted in the merit of Christ Jesus alone. Well, why? Because Jesus Christ alone is the only living hope. Jesus Christ alone is our living hope. Our hope sent from heaven. Jesus alone is the one who saves a dead sinner and makes them alive to God. The changing multitude of the many hopes in the world are always fleeting and they always fall short of the promises that Christ delivers upon. The object of our confidence for us, for God's elect exiles, is and forever will be Jesus Christ, the Holy and Begotten Son of God. So this epistle, I think, not only serves as an encouragement, but it serves as a warning. As a warning. Hey, do not fall into the ways and the passions of this world. Do not become over... Don't, don't get overcome, overrun by the things of this world, right? It serves as a warning. But also... I think it serves as an extreme comfort. Christ Jesus conquered all of this. The Lord did all of it. The Holy Spirit applied it. God ordained it. I didn't play any part. Therefore, it's not my victory. It is not my victory. It is Christ's victory, and it is mine as a result because I've been grafted in. I've been grafted in, but this victory belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's nothing that can shake that foundation. There's nothing that will take that away, right? So, so... That leads us to verses 4 and 5. We have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, that is kept in heaven for us, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So because God ordained all of this, and Jesus Christ has accomplished all things for us, and, and since the Holy Spirit has sealed us in, the com- in confirmation, our hope in Christ should never fade. Our hope in Christ should never fade. It should never dwindle. It should never teeter to one side or the other. It should be solid, right? It should never fade. God does not lie. The good shepherd will make sure on the final day 
that all of His sheep pass underneath the rod. Every single one. Our assurance in salvation is not rooted in how we feel. It's not that you feel saved, so you are saved. It's what God says. It's what God says, so it is. It doesn't matter if you feel that way. Your assurance isn't found in anything but in Christ alone, right? He is our hope. He is our hope. So God is the one who preserves us. He is the one who supplies the faith that we desperately need to do the things that He has ordained for us to do. There is nothing that can rip us from His hand. And if that happened, the blood of Christ would be nullified. That can't happen. That can't happen. Jesus Christ purchased us with His blood. If, if we are ripped away from God's hand now, then Jesus isn't God. And God's not God. False promises were made, and the blood of Christ did not prevail. Right? And that will not happen. So eternal life has no end, and we have been given that. So press on knowing that this temporal world is not our home. This world is not our home. And the things that the people hope upon in this world are fleeting. They're all going to disintegrate. They're all going to go away. The only things that are ever going to last in this room that we're in right now are your souls and this, the Word of God. Those are the only things that are going to last in here. Everything else is going to be destroyed. Everything else, right? So placing your hope upon anything that this world provides is foolishness. Absolute foolishness. You know? So we are an elect exile. We are elect exiles. And we have been commissioned to run the race well. We have been commanded to run the race well. Right? We must display the heart of Christ in all that we do. And without the Spirit of God dwelling within us, there is none of these th- we can do none of these things. It is the Holy Spirit who regenerates first and then gives us faith to believe. How do we strengthen our own faith? By crying out to God and meeting Him in prayer and in Scripture. Right? That's how we strengthen our faith. It's not anything that we pull from the deepest depths of our hearts that's going to strengthen our relationship with Christ or that's going to bolster and put spiritual, like steel to our spiritual backbones. There's nothing that we can pull from ourselves. You know, it, it, we are left to ourselves. We're still wrapped up in our flesh. The new life that we have been given is the indwelling Holy Spirit. You know, so it's the Holy Spirit that regenerates first. And we strengthen ourselves by crying out to God and meeting Him in both prayer and Scripture, by keeping in step with the Spirit and chasing after the Lord in all of His ways. The Holy Spirit is to guide and direct us. When you feel conviction, respond to it, right? And then allow yourself to be strengthened by the teaching of the Word of, Word of God, right? The, the Word of God alone strengthens. It is the tool that we've been given. we got the Word of God and we've got prayer and we've got the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit works through the pray- prayer and the Word of God. So utilize those things, right? Our hope is not fading. Hmm. Keep your focus on Christ because He is the giver of eternal life. And if we go to verses 6-7, through seven, we see this. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the testing genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So as elect exiles, as spiritual sojourners on this earth, it should never be a surprise when persecution comes or when trials come. This place is not our home, and the world hates our Savior, the world hates our King, right? It's a guarantee. Persecution is a guarantee. Trials are a guaranteed thing for a Christian. They are absolutely guaranteed. Scripture actually never promises earthly comfort. Not one time. 
It never promises earthly prosperity or an easy life or even the best life. I think that is such a dangerous life for Christians to believe. Live your best life now, a self-serve Christianity. A self-serve Christianity. Live your best life now? My best life is going to... <laughs> when I die. My best, my best life is when I die and meet the Lord face to face. That's when my best life begins, but it's already began because I've been given a new life in Christ. Right? I've already been given. I've already, been in, I've already entered into the kingdom of heaven. You've already been entered into the kingdom of heaven from the moment you were saved. Right? Our best life is not right now. Our best life awaits us in heaven where we will glorify God and enjoy Him forever because that is our end goal. That is our hope. That is our hope. So this means that we as a church can't be caught sleeping. We can't be caught lacking. We can't be caught unaware, right? If we are, then we will be picked off. I mean, how are you, how are you going to be defensive? How are you going to be able to defend yourself if you're not aware of what's around you? You have to be aware. We have to be aware as believers because Satan's favorite place to set up shop, right outside of faithful churches. There are wolves in sheep's clothing and every single church. No matter where you go, no matter what congregation you're in, they're there. They're there. The Lord Jesus, though, is the good shepherd, and He will protect you. He will protect you, but press into Him. Be aware by pressing into the Lord Jesus Christ. Be aware by pressing into the Lord Jesus Christ because He will protect you, Right? And these trials that were promised, these trials that were guaranteed, these things, these persecutions, all they are meant to do is sanctify us. All they are meant to do is sanctify us into the likeness of Christ. They are meant to wean us from the things of this world. They are meant to burn away all the extremities and hindrances that keep us from running the race well. Right? They are meant to redirect our hearts and to show us that our hope truly is in heaven. It is awaiting for us in heaven. And that our hope has a name. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ. We should press on knowing that the war has already been won. The war has already been won. The battle rages, but Christ has defeated death. He killed sin, and the serpent has been crushed. All that God says He will do, He does. He does it all. So look, if God says that we have an inheritance waiting for us in heaven, then you better believe it. Then you better believe it. Right? And that inheritance is Christ. It's life with Christ. It's life with the Lord. Right? Like, what else do we want? What is the point of Christianity if we don't eventually get to be united with Christ for an eternity? What is it about? You dwindle it down to a 12-step program. That's what it is. You make yourself feel better. But no, the end goal is Christ. To glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. Right? I think it's important to realize that during these trials, the world, the flesh, or the devil, they're not under their own authority either. They're not under their own authority. Satan has no power Satan has no power because Christ has defeated him. The flesh has no power because the indwelling Holy Spirit has applied to us the righteous life and the atoning death and the victorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. Sin no longer has any sway over a believer, over somebody who has the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have all that is necessary to fight sin, right? Christ is our hope. And Galatians 2, 2 21-22 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. We have been purchased. Our lives are no longer our own. 
Our lives were no longer our own. Before, we were dead. We were self-consumed, self-motivated, self-gratifying, self-pleasing. We've been set free from that. We've been set free from that because we have died to our old self through the death and resurrection of Christ. And we've been raised with Christ, right? So there's no more... There's no excuse. We have no excuse as believers to be, to be tossed to and fro if we have the, the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, right? There's, there's no reason. So the life that we now live, we must live by faith in the Son of God, right? And that's where we go to verses 8-9, through nine, which say, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So right here, Peter acknowledges that though they have not seen Jesus Christ in flesh, as the first disciples did you know, during his, his earthly ministry, even though they haven't seen Him, they love Him deeply. Even though you haven't seen Christ Jesus, you love Him deeply. And this serves as a testimony, as a testament to the eternal life that has been imparted to you through His death and resurrection, right? The Holy Spirit is now inside of you. And now, you can feel a love for Christ that is kindled that you did not have before, that you could not have had before. It's like, hey, you love Him and that is a result of your salvation. There is some evidence right there. And Peter underscores, I think, the significance of faith, um, emphasizing that though these believers don't see Jesus with their physical eyes, they don't see Him, they firmly believe in Him. You know, their faith is not a blind faith, though. Our faith as believers in Jesus Christ is not a blind faith, but it is rooted in the Word of God, who has not been, it's not been proven wrong. There's not been one thing prophesied in the Word of God that didn't take place. There's not been one promise made by the Lord Jesus or by God the Father that has not been fulfilled, right? There's not one, one thing, right? It's rooted in His teaching. It's rooted in the redemptive work of Christ and the testimony of those who did witness the Lord Jesus Christ in His works and in His death and in His resurrection and in His ascension. All of these things. Like we have a cloud of witnesses before us. We have a cloud of witnesses before us. And I think it is knowing that the God of Scripture, oh, it is knowing the God of Scripture and it is the Holy Spirit knowing you. That's what it is. It is knowing the God of Scripture and it is the Holy Spirit knowing you. I think that is where it comes from. Right? Do the things that are necessary for the Spirit to work and to sanctify you. So have faith. Think about this. I was thinking about this earlier in the office when I was studying for this. Think about the prophets of old. None of them knew Christ by name. Not one of them. The Messiah that they trusted and believed in just by faith. We know by name. We know by name. Why is their faith stronger than ours? We are on this side of the cross. We have seen the victory. We have, we, we, we've tasted of Christ's salvation, right? These guys didn't even know who Jesus was. They knew that a Messiah was coming. They didn't know that it was Jesus Christ. They had no idea. So this faith that the prophets had that Peter has and that he is exhorting us to have has a result. It has a result. And that result is that we will be filled with inexpressible joy. The believer will be filled with inexpressible joy. Hmm. It's a profoundly deep and transcendent thing. 
I think, surpassing ordinary human you know, expectations. It, it, is a, it is a divine assurance that you know I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. This joy is not contingent upon any earthly circumstances either. Right? We could be the poorest man on earth. I could be living in a cage without working legs. And I could be sitting there, but as long as I have Christ, I am prosperous. And that is the truth. That is the truth. Nothing on this earth is making me prosperous. Nothing here is adding on to the goodness of my life besides the Lord God. Nothing on this earth can add on to what we've already got, right? So, so our joy is not contingent upon anything on this earth. And ultimately, ultimately, at the end of this faith, like the, like the passage is saying, is the salvation of our souls. The final salvation, right? The same gospel that saved us on the day of our salvation is still saving us and sanctifying us, right? Faith, love, and joy in Christ lead to this ultimate goal of when you're united with Christ for an eternity. Through faith, believers are justified and reconciled with God, leading to the salvation of their souls from sin and separation from God. So this passage should serve as a wonderful and serious and powerful reminder that faith in Jesus Christ, though unseen, gives eternal life, and it holds all of the promise for eternity. It holds all of the promise. Christ has delivered upon every single thing that He has promised. The Lord God has given us His Son. He has given us every good spiritual blessing. He's given us all. I mean, look at the church that we're in. A, a firm church. Even that is a blessing. We have a faithful pastor. We have faithful people who serve in this church body. That is an evidence of the salvation of Jesus Christ. Do you really think people would be meeting here right now if, if, it wasn't, if this wasn't real? No. No, probably not. No? Yeah, I mean, this is evidence. That this, this is real. The evidence is seen. So the Lord Jesus Christ has done all of it, right? There's not one thing that we have to find assurance we don't have to find assurance in ourselves. Not one ounce of assurance is going to be found in ourselves or in anything of this world. It's all in Jesus. And our hope is Christ Jesus. No matter what you go through, no matter what trials, no matter what persecutions or whatever may come, be rooted and be sure that the Lord Jesus loves you. He died for you. He gave His life for you. He pursues you when you go astray. He brings you back into the fold. The Lord is faithful when we're unfaithful. God is just when we're unjust. Right? It's not that we're going to sin and the Lord's going to be like, ah, you lost it. You're no longer justified. No, we are justified in the eyes of God. You can't lose it because Christ paid for it. Right? This isn't our gospel. This isn't even ultimately... This isn't our message. This is God's message that He's planted within us. So it is our responsibility to allow that message that He has planted into us to bear fruit. To bear fruit. And how do you do that? Well, you can't bear fruit if you're severed from the vine. No branch can bear fruit if it's severed from the vine. Nobody can bear fruit apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody can do it. So what we need to do is keep in step with the Spirit. Remain strong in our hope. Remain firm in our hope that Christ Jesus has paid the penalty that Christ Jesus has taken upon His head the wrath that we deserved and that He has given us the life that we could never attain for ourselves. And one day we will be united with Him, whether in our deaths or in His coming. We will be united with Him and there will be nothing to separate us. We will be in a place 
where there are no tears. Tears are replaced with laughter and joy. Grief is replaced with joy. All of the things that are negative are replaced with the positive. The things that come from the Lord. And all of these things only come from the Lord. Right? So, the question we need to be asking ourselves is, where does your hope lie? Where does, our, where does your hope lie? Because if it doesn't lie upon the Lord Jesus Christ, if your allegiance is with this world, then your hope is not in Jesus Christ. If you're a friend of this world, then your hope is not in Jesus Christ because you're an enemy of God the Father. Right? So where's your hope placed? Is it placed, is it placed upon the cross of Jesus? Or is it placed upon something twisted and wicked? There are only two options. Anything apart from Jesus is something that is twisted and wicked, no matter how seemingly good it may seem, right? So we need to really ask ourselves. And, and if you're unsure whether, you're, whether your hope is placed upon the Lord Jesus, look at your, just look at your life. Just look at your life. Are you completely dependent upon the Lord in both life and in death? Right now and in death? Are you fully and completely dependent? If not, repent. God is faithful to forgive. Maybe you're just astray, but repent. God loves to forgive, right? He doesn't change. He forgave sin thousands of years ago. He will forgive it now. God is not reluctant with His forgiveness. He doesn't second-guess it. He gives it freely to all who ask from a humble and contrite heart. I think that's another thing you can look at. Do you think you could be characterized as somebody with a humble, meek, and contrite heart or spirit? Having Christ as a hope relieves you of all pride. It relieves you of all pride, and it causes you to be humble, and it causes you to bend your knee. So, if you don't see those things, then you're living in, in, in pride in arrogance and in rebellion probably, or you've gone astray. So look, there, there are a lot of things that you could look at, and this is honestly a very, very simple sermon. This is a very, very simple sermon. Our hope is the Lord Jesus Christ. We were dead. He made us alive. We didn't do that. We didn't afford that. We couldn't afford that for ourselves. He did it. And He gave us new life, eternal life. I've never seen anything eternal end. So... The life that He has given to you, the life that He has imparted to you, will not end. It is sustained and strengthened and rooted in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is driven and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And it has been ordained by God before the foundation of this world. We are the elect exiles. Us in this room, we are the elect exiles. And as sojourners on this earth, we have one mission. Advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. One mission. Advance it in your life personally and advance it by preaching it to others. But make sure that you have experienced the gospel first before you do that. But we have a mission that we've been given. So let's do it. Let's remain firm in our hope that Christ Jesus has done what He said He's done. Right? So let's pray. Father God, our hope should not lie on anything that we can procure for ourselves on anybody in this world. It shouldn't be placed upon any stupid ideology or pop psychology thing where it shouldn't be based upon any touchy-feely religion 
junk. Lord, it shouldn't be based upon a false picture of who you are. Lord, it should be based upon who you are and who you say you are. What your word says you are. What your word says you have done. Lord, our hope is in you. Lord, you have bought us and washed us clean with your blood. Lord, you have given us life. You have given us your Holy Spirit. So God, I pray that you would fill our hearts with joy, knowing that there is not one thing that can rip us from your hand. There is not one thing that can loosen your grasp around us. There is not one thing, Lord. Once we are yours, we are always yours. Our assurance is not found in anything that we can do but you alone. Lord, I thank you for this time. I pray that I just pray that this message would be beneficial, Lord. I pray that we wouldn't forget about it or just that we would keep in mind who you are and what you've done, what you've accomplished. We couldn't do any of it. Left in our own state, we were stuck in the sewer forever. We were stuck in darkness forever, Lord. But your light has led us out of the darkness and it has led us into salvation, Lord. And it is leading us to a place where we will be united with you for an eternity. Lord, we will be dwelling with you nonstop. So Lord, I thank you for what you've done. I thank you for what you've continued to do in our lives. Lord, I pray that you continue to sanctify us and build this church up, and I pray that you would just empower us through your Holy Spirit, Lord, to stir one another up in good love or in love and good works. Lord, I pray that we would stir one another up to chase after Christ as He has chased and pursued us. Lord, You are faithful. Cause us to be faithful. Give us the faith that is necessary for us to walk uprightly. Faith only comes from You. Salvation and life only come from You. So Lord, I pray that we would press in. And I pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.